The temple in Jerusalem was the center of worship and national identity in ancient Israel. The people of Israel have actually built two temples to God in Jerusalem, and both have been destroyed. The first by the Babylonians, and the second by the Romans. But it seems as if the Bible suggests there will be a third temple in Jerusalem. The desire for this third temple is sacred in Judaism, and particularly in Orthodox Judaism. The Hebrew Bible holds that Jewish prophets called for its construction to be fulfilled prior to, or in tandem with, the Messianic Age. This building of the third temple also plays a major role in some interpretations of Christian eschatology. In other words, some Christians believe that Jesus isn't coming back until a third temple is built in Jerusalem. But is that temple literal or symbolic? And if the temple is rebuilt, does that mean that the return of Christ is right around the corner? podcast. I hope you're having a lovely day or night or whenever it is you're listening to this or watching this. My name's Josh, along with my host Gabe. Co-host Gabe? Mm-hmm. We both are hosts. So assistant, assistant to the host? Okay. <laughs> I don't think it matters. Mm. You can you can be Capitan, Gabe, if you want. I don't okay, care. Yeah. I noticed uh, you're wearing a t-shirt today and you're you're rocking those guns. Well, Gibbs. <laughs> what guns? <laughs> <laughs> uh, pistols, pea shooters? Yeah, there know. you go. Some BB guns, some Red Rider. Some BB guns? Yeah, this is a shirt I got. Uh, I ran our Dothan, city of Dothan has a circle that goes around it. It's 13 miles exactly around this circle that circumvents the city. And so mm. every year they do a uh, run the circle. And it turns out, I learned after the fact, that it is the most dangerous road in all of Alabama. So yeah, oh. yeah. So we run the circle, uh, circumvented the city, and uh, it's a half marathon, obviously. Mm. But yeah, I did that last uh, October. Okay. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Are you thinking about running a race this October? I am. Yeah, with with a good friend uh, named yeah. Josh Brooker. What? I yeah. know him. Yeah, it'll be uh, Seven Bridges Marathon. Where's that in Chattanooga? Yeah, Chattanooga. Um, we're gonna do that one. I still got to sign up and get all my ducks in a row. Now I saw your your eyes stayed closed a little bit longer than normal when you said <laughs> I got to sign up. Like there was a bit of apprehension. <laughs> Man, I am so scared. I'm not gonna lie. I am so scared. Yeah, I've never done a marathon. You did you your first last year, and so yeah. yeah, I've I've been getting out and. Uh, trying to get more consistent in my in my running just to get my general my, my running legs back but uh yeah i'm pretty nervous about it but that's in yeah. october so we got time yeah you just gotta do it I was th- yeah i guess so i was thinking about doing uh where i run the marathon dressed like a dad so i was <laughs> like <laughs> i have white new balances on with like what you know like tube socks white tube socks and like yeah. Jean shorts yeah. with like a phone holster, mm-hmm. tucked in Dale Earnhardt. Yeah, tucked in Dale Earnhardt t shirt and like yeah. a sun visor. Do you and want to both dress up like that? 
We could. Yeah. Yeah. The dads. But you might. I mean, jean shorts sound very chafe yeah. friendly. So I don't know. It's, that does sound very chafe for my I first might have marathon. To, might have to wear some spandex underwear or something. So years ago, I ran a race called the Warrior Dash, which is kind of like the Tough Mudder, but it's like a Tough Mudder 5K. So you got obstacles and, you know, a, a mud pit you got to crawl through and a pond you got to swim through and all this stuff. So mm-hmm. there was a some sort of a group of gay men from Atlanta that all ran the Warrior Dash dressed up as softball coaches. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they had their, like, <laughs> tiny little softball shorts, and uh, they had knee-high tube socks, and they all high-stepped in unison, and they all had, like, in the back of their shirts, there was a lot of innuendo going on with the nicknames they were assigned and the numbers they were assigned, but mm. uh, it was a sight to behold. It was it was pretty funny. They all high-stepped the race, and nobody PR'd, I'm sure, but uh, it was it was pretty funny to to watch mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to be a part of so i don't want to do that for a marathon that would take like eight hours but yeah yeah just get out there yeah. and start stretching out your mileage you know little by little yeah. add, add, a, add a mile or two a week and you'd be surprised mm-hmm. at what your body can do it's pretty crazy yeah i'm looking forward to it so yeah it's gonna be good it's just a you know it's a daunting task but we'll figure it out but uh yeah yeah it's gonna be good though i'm looking forward to it other than that you've been doing good yeah, yeah, doing real good. Uh, yeah, nothing new in the uh, the Rutledge household, so to speak. That I can. Stacy and the boys went down to visit uh, my in laws down in in uh, near Bradenton, Florida. So I've got the house to myself today, and really all this week. So I'm um, getting a lot of stuff done. Yeah, working on windows, changing out windows in my house, and other house projects that I put Fun. off and put off. So yeah, it's good times. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I'm I'm that like. I woke up this morning though. I realized I was carrying on, carrying on full conversations with the cats though, <laughs> as I'm sitting there drinking coffee. <laughs> like, uh, it's yeah, not, it's not good. It's like day two of their absence, and I'm already having conversations with cats. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so funny. I always romanticize the absences of my wife and kids. Like they mm-hmm. went to East Tennessee to visit family, and in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm gonna get so much done. It's gonna be awesome. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be great. And they left and I'm just like sitting in an empty house and I'm like, this is the weirdest thing ever. My house is quiet. My house is never quiet. Yeah. It was odd. I cleaned the whole house, but, um, then I just was like sitting there like, I don't know what to do with myself. This is weird. But, it's a little bit spooky. Yeah. It's a little bit spooky. Yeah. But, uh, Anyway, well, hey, uh, something new I want to talk about um, before we get into our content for today is uh, a problem that I experience at time, and sometimes you do as well, and that is we've got crazy schedules. And sometimes you and I get up early, we work late, and then we do a lot of mentally taxing work of writing, speaking, and research and all that stuff. But uh, it requires a lot of focus and a lot of energy. And I don't know about you, but Gabe, sometimes I lean far too heavily on caffeine or coffee to get both focus and energy. And uh, that's when I discovered what the folks at Magic Mind were doing. And Magic Mind, I had no idea what they were about and what they were doing, but um, they're basically the first company that I've heard of that does um, focus elixirs and uh, productivity drinks. And so they sent you and I a sample of that, and we tried it out. And I'd love to hear your 
thoughts about it. Yeah. So I have a very physical life as well. Like I, you know, I wake up and either I'm at the first thing in the morning, maybe they're at the gym or running, you know, trails behind our house or whatever. And, um, and then I go to work at, you know, construction jobs. So it's physical day of work as well. And then I'm, you know, chasing kids around in the evening or, uh, you know, like you said, doing studying, preparing for what I'm going to be teaching on that following weekend. And so, yeah, my, by the time I get home, my mind's kind of zapped, but yeah, these, um, I, I used magic mind for three days in a row. That's how many samples they sent me to try out. Yes. <laughs> and if you look at, it's kind of funny. If you, if you look at, uh, the kitchen counter every morning, I usually make some kind of like supplement protein drink that basically serves as my breakfast. And there's like seven different ingredients for it. And it takes a good five minutes just to mix it all up and shake it up and everything. Uh, so it's kind of cool that this just comes in a little bottle. It's got many of the same ingredients and it's just a quick mm. shot and it actually tastes good. It was actually, you know, I was, yeah, was kind of like the first time I was like pinching my nose, like, oh no, this is going to be horrible. It looks horrible. Yeah. And you yeah. drink it and it actually has a nice taste to it. So, but yeah, I, I experienced yeah. a notable change in the longevity of my energy and focus throughout the day. And I was, I was yeah. pleasantly surprised by it. Yeah, I was too. I'm always skeptical of things like that, but it actually was, uh, it was pretty good. I felt like I had more attention, more focus, more concentration. And, uh, I've taken a supplement that it had in it called ashwagandha. My wife mm-hmm. takes ashwagandha and the little magic mind, uh, little shot had it as well. And so it, it reduces stress and anxiety and really was helpful. So they were kind enough to let Gabe and I try some of their products. And so we are here highly recommending magic mind. And if you are interested in magic mind, just go to magicmind.co slash beards and Bible. And you can use beards B20. That's all uppercase the number 20, to get up to 56% off your first subscription. It's a pretty good deal. Or 20% off your first one-time purchase. So the 56% off code only lasts 10 days from the premiere of this episode. So hurry up and grab your Magic Mind subscription. I highly recommend it. It was good. I also experienced three days of uh, reduced stress, anxiety, and more attention, concentration, and cognition. Mm. Mental mental acuity. Yes. So speaking of which, this is a heady topic we're heading mm-hmm. into today. Mm-hmm. And and here's why we're talking about it. Um, so we scratched the surface of this on our last episode because our friend Gregory sent in a question about it. And in the last 10 minutes of our episode, <laughs> we were like, hey, let's talk about this. And so we did, kind of. But... Um, then after that episode came out, I started getting emails from people saying, hey, you got to talk more about that. Like, that wasn't enough. That That is a huge, huge topic, and, like, we need more on it. Hmm. And so um, the more people started reaching out saying, hey, can you unpack that? Like, what is that? That's super interesting. The more I realized, okay, we probably need to, to spend a little more time talking about a third temple and the rebuilding of a third temple, what that means for eschatology, why some Christians think a third temple has to be rebuilt. Are we the third temple? What does that mean? And so, yeah, that's what we're going to be diving into today. So, Gabe, I guess the big question is, like, what is the significance of the temple for mm. the people of Israel? Like, why was the temple considered such a big deal? Well, that was post the exile from the garden, that was the only space where God's presence can be made manifest and humans can once again interact with it on earth. It was, it was, and there was a lot of garden imagery in the tabernacle and later in the temple. 
But yes, that's very, it's very important in, in the mind of, a, of, of descendants of Adam and Eve to think, okay, we can have that space again and we can be in the presence of God again and experience that again. And so, yeah, that's the, the temple and, uh, you know, the tabernacle temple, I'm going to use those interchangeably. Um, hmm. That is the center of the universe for every religious uh, Israeli um, ancient Israelite and even modern day Jew, religious Jew, even though there is no temple today, it is still the center of their religious universe today. Because it's the place in which the glory of God dwelt among man right. in the midst of the temple. Right, right. Okay. So if you read the Old Testament, like Gabe was talking about, there was the tabernacle, and the tabernacle. You can read about all the dimensions of the tabernacle and, you know, the elaborate decor that went into it. But really the center of the tabernacle, and Gabe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. Mm -hmm. And the Ark was kind of that place in which the presence of God and the glory of God dwelt on the mercy seat above the Ark. And so the priest would go in once a year into the Holy of Holies where the tabernacle was. And... um, Again, this was the place where the presence of God dwelt and the people of God could interact with God, um, and really the only place they could do that since Eden. Mm. And so the tabernacle traveled with the people of Israel all throughout, um, you know, they're, they're wondering until it settled really in, in a couple of different sanctuaries, uh, the cities of Shechem and the cities of Shiloh. And then King David captured Jerusalem, and the ark was moved to the city of Jerusalem. And then David chose a very significant place to build kind of a a permanent dwelling, if you will, for the ark, and uh, that was Mount Moriah. So what's the significance of Mount Moriah or this temple mount for for the temple? Yeah, so you're right, Shiloh was the place of the tabernacle and the altar for around 400 years, if I'm not mistaken before David moved it up to uh, the threshing floor on top of what is now called Mount Moriah. And there, um, you know, Solomon eventually built what became the first temple. And yeah, so that that, that became the place uh, where the Ark of the Covenant then sat, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years until the destruction of that first temple by the Babylonians in 586. It was actually specifically on the Hebrew calendar, the 9th of Av, the month of Av, the ninth day of hmm. the month of Av, the year 586 BC. And hmm. then um, it was destroyed again on the ninth day of Av in the year 70 AD by the Romans. Um, that was Herod's temple, and it was oh, wow. built in the exact same spot on top of Mount Moriah. So I realized that was the same date. Mm-hmm. That it was destroyed. So, is there some sort of spiritual or prophetic significance to that? Yeah, um, the ninth of Av is is the date when the traditionally when the the, the ten spies came back from the land with a bad report. Um, it's the destruction of the, an, the anniversary, the destruction of both temples. It's it's a traditionally in Judaism, it's a it's a fast day. It's a day for mourning, um, and the and a time mm-hmm. set aside for praying for the rebuilding of the temple. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, so the first temple was built by Solomon, and um, other sanctuaries would kind of retain their religious functions. However, uh, King Josiah would abolish them and make kind of the temple in Jerusalem the center of 
um, religious activity, the only place you could sacrifice in the kingdom of Judah, at least. And uh, the first temple must have been a sight to behold. I mean, it's amazing you read in, I believe it's the book of First Chronicles or Second Chronicles, the dedication of the temple by King Solomon. And it talks about the glory of the Lord and the presence of the Lord being so thick and being so heavy that the priest couldn't even minister because the glory of the Lord was like literally resting upon that place. Mm-hmm. And so like what exactly that looks like and what exactly that, that means, I think we're, we're kind of limited with human language to, to try to figure that out as we read about it in the scriptures. Okay. What, what must have that been like? I mean, that must've been amazing to see, but, um, just as a piece of architecture, it would have been incredible. Um, because you would have had several different rooms. You had the porch or the vestibule. How do you say that word in Hebrew? Do you see that in the show notes? Uh, let me look at it real fast. Is it ulam? Is that I'm how you say it? Um, I was I was reading a different article looking for a certain prayer, and I lost my place here. Huh. Uh, yeah, okay. So You're the, reading an the, article about the, Ariana Grande? Ulam, the ulam, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was looking for a traditional prayer that's prayed every day by by Jews, oh. and so I, I kind of lost my place in the notes. But yeah, ulam no, no, is the is the vestibule. Ulam, yep. okay, okay. So then there's the the main room or the holy place, the he, hechal. Mm-hmm. Did you say that? Yeah. And then the the holy of holies, the devir. Mm. That's the sacred room in which the ark rested. And then there was a storehouse that surrounded the temple, except for on its east side. And there would have been these massive altars, um, five of them, one at the entrance of the Holy of Holies, two within the building, a large bronze one before the porch, and a a large tiered altar in the courtyard, and then a huge bronze bowl or something called a sea in the courtyard. And uh, within the Holy of Holies, there would have been the ark, and that was where the divine presence, the Shekinah, the glory of God, would rest above the mercy seat of the ark, and it could only be entered by the high priest and only on the Day of Atonement, uh, which is Yom Kippur. So, now, Gabe, this isn't like from biblical text, but it, it's been said that the priest would enter in to minister with bells on the bottom of their robes and then a rope tied to their waist. Is that? Have you heard that before, or is that? Just, yeah, uh, I've heard um, kind of conflicting. It is. It is. I think it's maybe in some Talmudic writings. Um, they talk about that, but um, I can't say with certainty if that's if that's true or not. Yeah. So you know the the tradition goes that the priests were in the holy of holies, and if there was any sin in their lives because of the glory of God, I mean the, the perfection of God, that if they heard the bells stop. They go, okay, that guy just got struck down. And so since mm-hmm. no one else could go into the Holy of Holies, they would use the rope to pull the body of the priest out. Um, yeah, it makes anyway, sense. I mean, uh, like Zechariah in, in the book of Luke, like he goes in, he's offering incense on the, the incense altar just in the holy place, and they start to worry about him because um, mm-hmm, it's taking so mm-hmm. long. But yeah, so it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's definitely a viable story. Yeah. So not, needless to say, this is like the most sacred place in all of Israel. Mm-hmm. and all the kingdom of Judah. And so when Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylonia comes in, he first removes the temple treasures, and then he totally destroys the building in 586. And so then we have the exile, and then after the exile, you know, you read about in the, 
the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, people coming back to the city of Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the temple. Um, but I think one of the most like interesting parts of the book of Ezra is that after they rebuild it, some of the old men that remember the glory of the first temple see the second temple rebuilt and they weep mm. because they say it's it's not as good, it's not as glorious mm. as the yeah. first temple. So what was the what was lacking? What was it that they <laughs> was it just the architecture? Was it just you know the they didn't have the glory of the Lord resting upon it like they did in the days of Solomon? I mean, what what do you think was going on? Mm. Yeah, it could just be like. Aesthetically, it wasn't the same. Some people speculate that this is the first time the temple is devoid of the original Ark of the Covenant because the Babylonians plundered it mm. um, and may have taken it and melted it down. We don't really know for sure, but or they may have put it in a wooden crate for Harrison Ford to find. But <laughs> in the CIA, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we don't, we just don't know. But like you know, the, the, something was diminished about this until you know, obviously, Herod the Great comes along and he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this thing up. You know, like I'm gonna. I'm yep. gonna uh, make it like MTV Cribs here with this with this temple. Mm-hmm. Well, before he comes around, we have the yeah. the Persian and the Hellenistic periods, and so during that time, the the temple was generally respected and uh, subsidized in part by Judea's foreign rulers. But then we have our buddy Antiochus Epiphanes, and he comes in in 169 BC, and. Uh, he commits an act that many believe the prophet Daniel prophesied. He does something so vile in the temple, the prophet Daniel seems to refer to that as the abomination of desolation. And so what what did he do exactly that was so vile and so perverse in the temple? Well, according to the book of Maccabees, he set, he set up a, um, a statue to the god of Zeus, if I'm not mistaken, and then he... Um, he sacrifices a pig. Some some accounts say he sacrificed one mm. pig. Some accounts say he sacrificed a pig every day on the holy altar, which would have been forbidden, obviously, because it's an unclean animal. And right. uh, yeah, it would have d- d- greatly defiled the altar and the temple itself. Yeah. So then we have something called the Hasmonean Revolt. Mm-hmm. And this would be what we read about in First and Second Maccabees, right? <clears throat> and so if you're not familiar with that, it's because we don't typically have that as part of our scripture as um, Christians, unless unless you're Catholic and you have the apocryphal text, because First and Second Maccabees is kind of considered more of a, not really canon, but it's it's important. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's, that's fair to kind like of... History, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, this Hasmonean revolt is Judas Maccabeus, I think I'm saying his name right, goes in and cleanses and rededicates the temple. And uh, this is why we have the, put on your yarmulke, time <laughs> for the Hanukkah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, tell us about Hanukkah. A lot of people don't know about Hanukkah. What's the big deal of Hanukkah? Hanukkah is a, you have to talk a little as you're saying it. <laughs> Hanukkah. Yeah, it's a, it's a word that means dedication, just to rededicate. So, yeah, after they, okay. they did it on the 25th of the Hebrew month of Kislev, and it's they, you know, they they went in and they found um, they had a problem because the priests were were um, were impure. They were contaminated with with death, and they needed to be cleansed with the ashes of the red heifer and sit on the sidelines for seven days after doing so, in order to begin uh, the service in the temple and offering sacrifices in the temple. 
Hmm. But um, they went in the temple, and knowing this, they they found only one day's worth of oil to light the big menorah that was in the holy place. So um, they said, you know what, let's just fill it up, and let's light it, and let's wait the seven days that the priests need to be able to be purified, to come back in and resume the service, and let's just see what happens. So they lit it for knowing that they only had one day worth of oil. This is recorded in the Talmud, by the way. And it miraculously burned for uh, for eight days. And um, hmm. that's why, you know, to this day, uh, religious Jews will get what's called a Hanukkah. It's like a Hanukkah menorah. It has eight uh, candles on it, and you light it and let it burn for eight nights. And it's to commemorate hmm. the great miracle that happened there. And um, even on those little dreidels, have you seen those dreidels that kids play? It's like mm-hmm, a little mm-hmm, spin, mm-hmm. like a little top that they spin. Even on there, there's letters, there's four Hebrew letters that form an acronym for the phrase, a great miracle happened there. And wow. uh, so it's all centered, Hanukkah centered around this, uh, this oil that miraculously burned and the rededication of the altar and the resumption, the ability of the, the priest to resume there, which is interesting, um, you know, with this, with this altar that was, that was defiled by pig's blood, as they came in and they, they cleansed out the, the temple of all these idols and all these other things. They, they didn't know what to do with the altar stones because it was the original stones from the altar, but it had been defiled repeatedly with, with the blood, blood of pigs. So there was this great debate that happened, and they are like, well, let's just chuck them out. No, we can't chuck them out because they're holy. You know? So they set them off to a size. This is recorded in the Talmud. The Talmud says that they set them off in a place until a prophet would come and tell them what to do with the stones. And so if you go to John chapter 10, uh, the only place in the entire 66 book canon of scripture that Hanukkah has ever mentioned, go to John chapter 10, it says that Jesus was in the temple during, it was a winter and it was during the feast of dedication, which is Hanukkah. And really, yeah, so, so they are pressing him in the temple, tell it saying, tell us plainly, you know, are you the Messiah? And I have a hunch that they were hoping that he would tell them what to do with these stones, because he had that this super interesting massive following, you know, and he was he had the aura of a prophet. Um, but so they says, "Tell us plainly," you know. Um, so it's interesting. He may have been he's walking around. I think he's walking in Solomon's colonnade in that passage. I can't mm-hmm. remember. Yeah, that's verse twenty three. So it's John ten. Yeah. 22 and 23, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... And that's exactly where they put the stones. They put the stones and huh. they stored them in, in Solomon's, Solomon's colonnade. Yeah, from the altar. That's super so. interesting. Yeah. So yeah, so during the days of Jesus, that would have been in the second temple, but after the Hasmonean revolt... Um, we see Herod the Great coming in. He was king of Judea, and he rebuilt the temple, and apparently it was, it was very elaborate. It was very impressive. I mean, even though that from the Gospels, um, people were really, really proud of that temple. Um, you know, even so even after the Hasmonean Revolt, we have the Roman conquest in 63 BCE, but the Romans kept the temple intact at that time. They didn't really do what Antiochus Epiphanes or, you know, the Babylonians did. Um, we do have a record of Pompey. I guess that's his name. He was curious, and so he entered the Holy of Holies. 
And then another Roman leader, I guess he was a general who plundered the temple treasury, but they kind of left it alone. Hmm. And um, so the temple kind of enjoyed for anywhere from, you know, about a hundred years, just sort of peace. People just left it untampered until there was a rebellion against Rome that began in AD 66. And then in AD 70, that's a very, very important day um, or very important year. The temple was completely destroyed, completely flattened. And so all that remained of the temple was the retaining wall that surrounded the Temple Mount and what's now known as the Western Wall. And uh, Gabe, you've been to Jerusalem? Yeah, yeah, I've been to the, the Temple Mount. I've stood where, okay. where the temple once what, stood. What is? What do you see when you go to the Temple Mount now and you can see the, that original wall? What What is that like now? What are people doing at it? Uh, yeah, there's there's definitely one major section of the wall. I mean, all the walls are pretty much there for this this main retaining wall that Herod built. It's not the mm-hmm. actual temple wall itself. It's just because if it was a temple wall, it wouldn't fully fulfill the, the prophecy in uh, Matthew 24 that no stone would be left upon another. But it's just a retaining wall. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's the western retaining wall. And it's where... Um, the, it's it's basically it's hard long story. So you can't go up on top of the Temple Mount and pray legally if you're not a Muslim. Only Muslims can go hmm. on top of the Temple Mount and pray legally. If you're a Jew or a Christian, you get caught praying up on top of the Temple Mount. You're banned for life. You can't go up there. You might be arrested and everything too. He'll kick hmm. you off. So um, the temple was always a house of prayer. You would try to get to the temple to to say prayers. The closest you can go to where the temple once stood and legally pray just so happens to be this little courtyard called the Kotel or sometimes called the Western Wall. And so you go as close as you can to where the temple once stood and that's where you pray. Some people say it's the most holiest place in all of Judaism. You know, it's just, you know, it's the epicenter of their faith. It's not really, it's just, that's the closest you can go and legally pray Hmm. and not be arrested or beaten or anything. That's interesting. Yeah. So when you go there, you'll probably see a lot of Orthodox Jews oh, yeah. who are yeah. making a pilgrimage from probably all over the world mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. in to pray at the Western Wall. Some people call it the Wailing Wall. Yeah. Um, and, and what many Jews are praying for as they're there is for the temple to be rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Because if you, like Gabe said, on the actual Temple Mount, there is a Muslim mosque. Mm-hmm. The the Dome of the Rock, that's probably the most famous site in Jerusalem, this big gold dome. And so that was uh, 691 that was built, this, this mosque. Um, so there's like this huge dispute over who owns the Temple Mount. Is it the Jews? Because there's the Western Wall, and then there's the actual mount, which is a Muslim mosque. Um but yeah, you, you see Orthodox Jews going, and they're literally standing at that wall, and some of them are doing the thing where they're rocking back and forth, which is their name for that, where you're rocking back and forth. Yeah, and so well, after Titus had the temple destroyed in 70, not only did he like pulverize every stone and leave no stone upon another, he actually built a temple to the god of Jupiter on top of that spot. Mm. And many people speculate that um, the Temple of Jupiter later became, after um, after Islam was born, that that became the shrine over the rock, 
And hmm. um, because many people are confused, like the dome of the the dome of the rock is actually not a mosque; it's a shrine protecting and covering the rock beneath it. That's why they call it the dome of the rock. And that rock is where Muslims believe Muhammad ascended into heaven from. And off to the side, yeah, off to the side, there is a mosque called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And Mm -hmm. um, they have daily prayer times there five times a day. And you can go up onto the Temple Mount. You just can't pray, but it has to be in between those various prayer times. You can't be up there and not be praying the Muslim prayers. So, so yeah. as a non-Muslim, you can visit just to, to visit, but yeah, when yeah, it's and it's time, interesting. You, get out. you have to. There's actually like a dress code up there. Um, okay. And I saw many a many a well-intentioned uh, men walk up wearing shorts, or women wearing dresses that were too short. That was there in the summer, and uh, they actually had this big crate full of green, kind of like hunter green-looking long dresses or skirts. Hmm. And they pass them out to men who are wearing shorts or women who are not dressed modestly. And you have to put that on. So you see like men walking oh, around wow. with these long green skirts on with elastic yeah, bands yeah, yeah. around their waist. And and yeah, you turn it back wow. in when you come down off the mountain. So yeah, it's very tense, very tense. Uh, yeah. I think it's about like 30, it. 36 acres of a plateau. My goodness. So yeah, so if you're paying attention so far, first temple built by Solomon, destroyed by the Babylonians. Second temple rebuilt by exiles coming back to Jerusalem. This is what we read about with the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. It's destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And so now a third temple. And this desire for the third temple is what you will witness if you go to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. These Orthodox Jews praying, rocking back and forth, calling upon the God of Israel, Hashim, to rebuild the temple. And that's a very, very sacred and very real hope for Judaism and Orthodox Judaism. And so um, there is also like kind of a messianic hope tied to the third temple. Is that right, Gabe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do the Jews believe about Messiah and the third temple? Like what what's going to happen if the third temple is rebuilt? Does that mean the Messiah is coming or what? Yeah, there's no uh, kind of like Christianity in the end times. There's not. There's no... Uh, cohesion, is that the word I'm looking for? Agreement on... Consensus. Consensus, yeah, thank you. There's the word. There's no consensus in within within the different branches and denominations of Judaism on what that will look like. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but there is, yeah, there's this... Some believe that you have to build a third temple for the Mashiach, Messiah, to come. Some believe that, no, you don't build the temple. He will build it. Um, hmm. And others are like... No temple whatsoever. Let's just let's just live out our our Jewish lives. Pray to God, and let's just stop all this. Okay. So it's kind of interesting. Right, 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 um, right. If I could tell a quick story, I was on a plane yeah. flying from Tel Aviv to New York City, and it was about eighty to ninety percent um, Orthodox and specifically Chabad uh, branch of Jews on the plane with mm-hmm. me. Big families. Um, you know, these guys. I hate to be like stereotypical, but these are like the the black coat, black hat. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know, decked out like Orthodox Jews and I'm, I'm sitting on the plane with them and I'm just wearing like a t-shirt and swimming trunks you know, <laughs> and flip flops. <laughs> and, uh, but I get my seat and I'm, I'm sandwiched between two Orthodox men who are Chabad, uh, ultra Orthodox religious Jews. Right. And one speaks English. The other one does not. And they're both speaking Hebrew to each other ar- around me. 
And uh, so <laughs> you're taking notes. You're like, I'm yeah. wow, learning so much. Yeah. 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 So, so um, they start asking me questions and stuff and I start asking them questions about what they believe about, about specifically about the third temple and the coming of the mm-hmm. Mashiach mm-hmm. as they see it. Well, they believe mm-hmm. that this, uh, this, this um, Lubavitcher Rebbe Menachem Schneerson who lived in the 1990s and he died of a stroke in the nineties, they believe that he is the Messiah and that he's oh, dead and in his grave right now. And then on a future Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, he will resurrect from the dead. They were flying to Queens, New York to hopefully be some of his first followers and disciples to see him rise from the dead. And what? it was two, this was two days before Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. So, um, and they believe wow. when he resurrects from the dead, that he will walk into the Chabad headquarters there in Queens, New York. And that the Chabad headquarters and all of its followers will be in the, the building itself will be raptured up into the air and it will go up into the clouds. All these so picture tens of thousands of Jews being raptured up and then it will be teleported over on top of Jerusalem and the third temple and the Chabad headquarters, this little like it looks like a townhouse, like those old New York, mm-hmm, Brooklyn mm-hmm. style that will yep. descend down together in, on top of the Temple Mount and completely crush and annihilate both the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And wow. I'm just like really? sitting here like, whoa, <laughs> I, that just created so many more questions in my mind. The guy sitting to my right is actually, he was one of the media um, like uh, creator guys for the whole Chabad movement, which is a massive mm-hmm. worldwide movement of Orthodox Jews. And he pulled out his phone and showed me this video that he produced of it's all CGI, like all, of all of this happening. And you can like hear these shofars wow. like playing in the background and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is great. You know, this is amazing that I'm getting to see this and how yeah. you view this. And so, yeah, they believe that this guy is the Messiah and that he will like he, upon his resurrection, he will bring down the third temple. Okay. So when that didn't happen, did they still, did they, they go Harold camping and drop back and punt? No, no, no. They, they, they don't know which. Rosh Hashanah, he will resurrect on. They go oh, every gotcha. single gotcha, year. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah, they fly every wow. single year to Queens, New York to hopefully be the first to see his his resurrection. My goodness. Which, I mean, is like convicting for me because I'm like, man, that is like that to fly. Belief in imminency. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Oh, I'm wow. like convicted because like, man, I, I have a hard time getting out of bed and like just going to church <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah well i mean even s- just like us seeing as christians like we believe jesus could come back at any moment but do we have that kind of imminency that kind of mm. man this could be the year this could be the day that he returns you know yeah, um, yeah and it's kind of sad to see that that kind of hope and trust is put in someone who died of a stroke and is laying in his grave mm-hmm. yeah you know what i mean it's like yeah. kind of like man i, I got to a better Messiah that like actually did rise again. <laughs> and that's what, what I said. I said, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, I went through some of the, some of Daniel and talked about like the prince had to be cut off before the destruction of the second temple. And mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, some interesting things we talked about. It was, it was a long 12 hour flight. <laughs> we had yeah. some really good yeah, conversations. Yeah. I had a, a long eight hour flight sitting next to a secular Jew coming back from Brussels mm. to Newark. And uh, she, she was all over the place. She she yeah. was Jewish and had a Jewish identity, so she you know did Passover and all that. But that's about it. I mean, she was very mm-hmm. much, you know, I don't really know what happens when we die. Maybe we're this. Maybe we're that. You know, some people yeah. say this. Some people say that. I don't know. That's very common. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a very interesting witness. When you we as a Christian start witnessing to Jews, I think we sometimes think it's just going to be so easy. We're just going to be like, oh, yeah, Jesus is Messiah. <laughs> and they're going to be like, what? <laughs> but it's most of the time they have been warned about us for mm-hmm. generations that mm-hmm. we're anti-Semitic and that we're trying to get them to abandon their Jewish heritage and mm-hmm. follow Jesus, who is the ultimate goy, which is ironic because Jesus was Jewish. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's the hope of many in Judaism, that the third mm. temple will be rebuilt and either Mashiach will rebuild it himself or it will re- be rebuilt before Messiah comes. Mm-hmm. And so then there are Christians who say, okay, well, that Mashiach, that Messiah, that is Jesus, and he's going to return and he's going to either rebuild it himself or it's going to be rebuilt before he does come. And so why is it that some Christians believe it has to be rebuilt before he can return? Well, this is where we get into the weeds, and this is where it gets kind of tricky to try to figure out, okay, why are there so many Christians banking their hopes on the return of Christ being connected with this rebuilding of the temple? And so they're on you know, prophecy watch for Charisma magazine. And, oh, did you hear there's a there's a cow in Texas somewhere and that means the temple's going to rebuild. So we got about, I don't know, about two more years here and then we're getting out of here, right? And and so it just kind of gets a little bit um, complex when you start getting into this. But I think it's important to know there are many different viewpoints on this. So we're going to give you some terms and we're going to talk about why these terms matter. And these are schools of interpretation when it comes to the study of the end times, all right? So we're going to give you four interpretations of just sort of a broad view of eschatology and then three interpretations of this thing called the millennial kingdom, all right? If you're confused on that, we'll walk through it, okay? So four interpretations of end times or eschatology. The first is the preterist view, preterist view. So this school of interpretation basically says the fulfillment of the book of Revelation and even some prophecies in the book of Daniel and some prophecies made by Jesus, the fulfillment of those things came about when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. So the book of Revelation specifically was written for the first century church. It would have had to have been written like before 70 AD for that to happen, right? Because mm-hmm. this was prophesying about Jerusalem being destroyed. So some people that hold to this view, they say, yes, Jesus is coming back, but he's just going to come back. There's no like, you know, this has to happen, then this has to happen, then this has to happen. No, all of those signs at the end we read about, that biblical prophecy, that's not really for us. So that is the preterist view. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. You met people with this view? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Second uh, interpretation of the end times is the historicist view. So that is revelation and other biblical prophecy speaks of things that happened in the recent past and that applies to every generation. So the predictions we read about in the book of Revelation specifically, um, but also again, Daniel, the prophecies of Christ about the end times, those cover the entire period between when those predictions were made and the return of Christ. And so this school of thought basically says like, no, this is like a cyclical thing. Like every generation has an antichrist. Every generation has 
these signs that point us to the fact that this world is not our home. So Jesus is coming back, and yes, things are going to get bad until his return, but we can't expect anything specific to signal his return. It's just going to be all these things are going to continue to happen in every generation, and then he's going to show up. Mm -hmm. Then there is the futurist view, and the futurist view is, no, all the prophecies we read about in Revelation and Daniel, the prophecies of Christ, all of these things are pointing almost exclusively to things that have not happened yet. It's things that will happen. It's things that are going to happen at the end of the age, the things to come. So the futurist view is, no, nah, man, we're, we're reading about this in the book of Revelation. We're reading about this temple being rebuilt. That's not happened yet. So it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Hmm. And the fourth is there's the idealist view, and that's basically... All these things are just symbolic. All these things are allegory, right? They're not, there's nothing specific historical that's going to happen. There's really nothing specific historically that has happened. It's just sort of this symbolic portrayal of the spiritual conflict between evil and the kingdom of God. It's all allegory, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense, those four? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So which one would you have to hold to? if you believed that a third temple would be rebuilt? Mm. Um, it might fall into a futurist. Revelation in the end times prophecy speaks of things that will happen in the future that lead to a company at the end of the world. Um, it can fit, it can maybe fit in the historicist view and maybe the yeah, futurist maybe. view. Yeah, maybe the futurist view. Uh, yeah. What do you think? I would say futurist. I would say there's probably people in the historicists that would say, okay, yeah, I mean, you know, the temple's been rebuilt before, so it might be mm-hmm. rebuilt again, you yeah, know. Yeah. But I would say probably most people that believe in a third temple being rebuilt, they would say, okay, this this is a prophecy that points to what's mm-hmm. going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. So then that's when you get into three viewpoints of the millennial kingdom. So if you read in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, I'm just going to read what the scripture says. This is 20 verses 1 through 4. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. And shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So, this is interesting. The book of Revelation describes a thousand years of peace and prosperity on the earth where Satan is bound. What is that? (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. When is that? How does that work? So historically across church history, you've got three schools of interpretation. The first is called premillennialism. So this thousand years that we just read about is a future physical kingdom that Christ will establish at his return. And so Christ comes back, he sets up shop, he rules and reigns over the messianic kingdom that's kind of centered in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then the text says, then the devil is released for a little while and 
the devil goes against Jesus and is defeated permanently, and then we get a new heaven, new earth, and that's the eternal state, right? Mm-hmm. So that's called premillennialism. Second viewpoint is called postmillennialism or postmillennialism. <laughs> if you worship post Malone, that's a dumb joke. Mm. Nobody worships post Malone. Um, <laughs> that is Christ should return after a general period of peace and prosperity. So really what they see this thousand years is simply the period of the church. That the church is going to basically increase in influence and society is going to continue to improve. It's going to release kind of the the kingdom and dominion over the earth, this whole seven mountain mandate you see in a lot of NAR circles. So we're going to get to this utopian-like state, and then that's when Satan does war against Jesus, and then we have the eternal state. It's post-millennial. And then the third viewpoint is amillennial. The word ah means no, or amillennial, 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 tomato, tomato. And basically it is that this is not literal. This is symbolic. And the thousand years described here is the spiritual kingdom that's Christ's rule in the hearts of his people during the church age. That make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you believe that a literal temple is going to be rebuilt, you would probably have to be a premillennialist. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Temples rebuilt, and then Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem all over this messianic kingdom. The temple is kind of the activity of that rule and reign. I guess you could see that also within the post-millennial, that this age of the church and prosperity leads to the building of the temple. Yeah, yeah, it might fit in there, barely. Yeah, yeah. So... You'd have to be a futurist, all right? So you believe that those prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. Then you'd have to be premillennialist, premillennialist that there's going to be this thousand-year reign. So why would you think, if you're a premillennial futurist, that there has to be a third temple rebuilt before Jesus comes back? Well, there's really kind of three big reasons. The first is there are prophecies about sacrifices resuming in the temple. So, Gabe, walk us through that. Like, what what prophecies talk about sacrifices resuming in the temple? Uh, mainly that of Daniel chapter 12. Like, Dan- Daniel's, uh, say Daniel chapters like 8 through 12 are, are very pivotal when understanding the, the potential third temple. Um, but, yeah, Daniel 12, 11 speaks of the daily sacrifice being taken away. And uh, for sacrifices to be taken away, obviously, right before the end, Um it won't, won't they need to be happening first? We at least we at least to the minimum need like an altar. So, mm-hmm. um, and then Daniel eight nine fourteen speaks of a little horn that will cause the daily sacrifices to cease. Um, and a lot of people see, a lot of scholars see the little horn as um, Antiochus Epiphanes, the one who was kind of like this archetype of end time religious power, like an antichrist. Um, mm-hmm. He'd be aligned with a civil power called the Beast. And then uh, lastly, um, it's possible that the Jews could begin offering sacrifices, like I said, on an altar without rebuilding a temple. Um, and we see this played out in Ezra chapter 3, where they were able mm-hmm. to begin sacrifices with just an altar. But many Christians still see uh, the, the rebuilding of, of a third temple as, as necessary to the fulfillment of this. Sure. Yeah, so um, someone could be what's called a partial preterist. With um, it's called 
telescoping predictions. Mm-hmm. So Daniel speaks of an abomination of desolation that happened in that generation. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus says in Matthew 25, I believe, or Matthew 24, that there's going to be another abomination of desolation. Mm-hmm. And so many people see that happening around AD 70 mm-hmm. um, or kind of near that revolt. But also, like, we understand that the telescoping prophecy is there's one for this generation, there's one for that generation, and then there's one still yet to come. Mm-hmm. Right? And so one could say, all right, so that is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, but also it could be sacrifices are going to resume in the temple before the end of the age, like the final end of the age, all of human history. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one reason that kind of seems compelling. And the second is uh, the book of Ezekiel. If you read through the book of Ezekiel, it is all about, especially chapters 40 through 48, a temple that is going to be built. And it's going to be a very elaborate temple. It's going to be a very supernatural temple, if you will. And so um, the big question is, okay, so when does this happen? When is this very elaborate kind of eternal supernatural temple built? Um, So some people think that this like looks back to Solomon's temple. Mm -hmm. But since Ezekiel's vision of the temple came after the destruction of Solomon's temple, others have assumed that this was a instruction from God for building a second temple or... Herod's rebuilding of it, but then you look at it, the temple that Ezekiel has shown, it looked nothing like the second temple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, there's mm-hmm. all these things about like, and this river that flows through the temple, well, that's never flowed from the first temple or the second temple or the Herodian temple. Um, there's all these geographical dimensions and tribal allotments of land. Mm-hmm. So it kind of seems like what Ezekiel is seeing is a real literal rebuilt temple that will usher in the messianic kingdom or the messianic age. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's, it's too detailed to mm-hmm. be taken allegorically, um, or symbolically. Like here's Ezekiel 40 verse 43, the double pronged hooks, each a hand breadth long were fastened all around the inside of this room. And the flesh of the offerings was to be placed on the tables and it's just like all this kind of language about how many yeah. hooks on the walls for 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 hanging offerings. There's it's just very uh, exact um, dimensions and details that I don't think it's meant to be taken allegorically, personally. Yeah, I don't either. But here's the difficulty with this, and honestly, this has kind of stumped me. If Ezekiel is referring to a temple that will operate in the millennial kingdom, mm-hmm. that's the 1,000-year reign of Christ after he returns to earth, why are animal sacrifices going to be offered once again? That's yeah. what he says in chapter 40, verses 38 through 43, because didn't Christ offer himself once for all? That's Hebrews seven twenty-seven. Yeah. So riddle me this, Gabe. <laughs> Why is that in there, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> a really tough question. And I mean, you could ask the same thing, uh, like Paul in Acts chapter 21, possibly in, even in Acts 18, but definitely in Acts 21, he is, um, it's well recorded that he's going up to the temple 
to partake and start what's called a Nazarite vow, which is number uh, detailed in Numbers chapter 6. Not only himself, but he's sponsoring four other men to do the vow as well. When you actually go back to number 6 and you look at this, this Nazarite vow, it, it counts out the number of animals that the Nazarite would have had to bring to the altar um, and given to the priest. Hmm. And it's something, if Paul were to go through with this, it's something like 15 or 16 animals that he would have had to purchase and offer up as sacrifices on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem post the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, hmm. um, and he agrees to do it. Um, it wasn't like he's like, oh, and let me let me quote Hebrews and, and talk to you about why that's no longer part of our worship system. So it speaks, and I don't fully understand it, but it, something did not change the way we assume it changed in the mind and theology of Paul. Um, and that makes me uncomfortable. I'm not going to lie. Sure. And I don't fully understand it, but we at least have to make room for the fact that at least up until the destruction of the temple, some of the earlier fo- earliest followers of Christ were still going to the temple to pray and seemingly make animal sacrifices. That's super interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's almost as if they would do animal sacrifices kind of the same way we do communion, almost symbolic to point to... perhaps the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't know what was going on in their minds with that. But right, right. I wish I did. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what that would look like. I don't know. Um, and then kind of the third reason that someone would think the temple needed to be rebuilt that would have been from a futurist and premillennial school of interpretation was all of the prophecies about the abomination of desolation and the blasphemy of the Antichrist. So I mentioned this earlier Daniel prophesied of an abomination that causes desolation. Jesus said that that would also happen before the end of all things. And so you can see in both the um, time of Daniel and in the time of Jesus, these prophecies kind of had an immediate fulfillment. But many Bible scholars have said, okay, they're going to also have an ultimate fulfillment before the final judgment. Mm -hmm. So we talked about this. Daniel's defiling, destructive incident that he prophesied about was most likely Antiochus Epiphanes, who set up a statue of Zeus on the altar, sacrificed a pig. Okay, so that's that's an abomination, right? Hmm. But Jesus says this is going to happen again before Jerusalem is destroyed. And so scholars have kind of speculated, okay, what is that? What is that abomination? We're not really sure. We have some writings Around the Jewish revolt, 66 to 70 AD, before the Romans got sick and tired of it and destroyed Jerusalem. But there's an interesting writing. I'm trying to remember exactly the reference, but um, it says that the zealots appointed a clown as high priest in the temple. (laughs) And so maybe that was the abomination that caused desolation. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, what what do you think? I mean, was there another incident that maybe you Um, heard of? I think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, as soon as the Romans went in and took control of the temple, if I'm not mistaken, I think, I think that they began making sacrifices to, to Zeus inside the temple. Hmm. Um, you said Jupiter. They set up something to Jupiter. Yeah, right? on top of the Temple Mount, yeah. Um, yep. But I have to look that up. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not certain on that. I know that the, the temple caught fire, um, okay. so I don't know how they would make sacrifices if it was burning down. Um, right. But yeah, so 
I mean, it could be that the, the abomination of desolation is just the fact that they, that all these, uh, you know, Gentile Roman soldiers went in and destroyed the temple and trampled down the temple. That could very much be yeah. Yeah, yeah, an yeah. abomination that makes desolate. Yep. So there was immediate fulfillment for Daniel. It seems like there was an immediate fulfillment in Jesus's generation, but still there seems to be a future fulfillment of this prophecy because Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, there will be a man of lawlessness or a man of sin who will enter into the temple and blasphemously demand that everyone worship him in the temple as a god. So that's a very interesting prophecy, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How are people going to worship this man of lawlessness, this man of sin, what we know of as the Antichrist, in the temple unless the temple gets rebuilt. Hmm. So if you're listening to this and you're amillennial or you're postmillennial, you're probably going to say, well, okay, the prophecies about the abomination of desolation and the Antichrist, they've already been fulfilled. Ezekiel's vision is symbolic. The sacrifices being resumed have already been fulfilled in Daniel. All that stuff's been already fulfilled. Most of the stuff that hasn't is symbolic. I, I think... Okay, I can understand how somebody gets there, but where I at where I'm at personally is it seems far too detailed to be allegorical. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, because you, you read scripture and there's some that is like, okay, the the intended meaning of this, it seems that this is clearly figuratively communicated. It seems like this is clearly symbolic, but then when you read about these very specific things that are happening, it's kind of like, well. It kind of looks like this is going to have to literally happen before the the end of all things, not just the end of the temple age or the end of. That's kind of where I see it. I mean, do you do you see it that way, Gabe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. So if we do see the temple being rebuilt, does that mean like Jesus is like right around the corner, like he's? He's getting his keys and his cell phone and his wallet, and he's about to head out the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's tough, and I'm, I'm I was able to find um, this uh, article that was talking about uh, when the Romans would conquer a new uh, people group, or they would level this, you know, temple or something like that. That they would they would actually there was this there was this um, standard operating procedure. I'm going to botch the pronunciation of this. Was Sov- Sove Torilia. It's a ritual sacrifice mm. of a pig, sheep, and ox. It was customarily performed for land purification ceremonies so as to cleanse the past and future sins committed on that land. If a temple was destroyed, as was the case in 70 AD, the site of the temple must be purified by this ritual and the sacrifice of an ox, a sheep, and a pig. Um, so it would be interesting mm. if, yeah, it's, it seems likely that there was some kind of desecration of the temple in that, in that, mo- in that way. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, um, Gabe and I were talking last night about um, what some people have over the years reached out to me about. This is pretty recent. The news that five red heifers were flown to Israel from Texas to meet the requirements for resuming temple sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't know what a heifer is, (laughs) Heifer is a young female cow that is not yet calfed. 
Um, that is a textbook definition of a heifer. And so in Numbers 19, 2 through 10, God commanded a sacrifice of this special kind of heifer whose ashes would be used for the water of purification to purify priests before they could offer sacrifices. And so that's what's hard about finding an unblemished red heifer because as a cow ages, hairs are going to turn white and black and the animal is going to be rejected by the rabbis as, as, as blemished. But this group in Texas said, oh, well, we've, we've got red heifers. They're not blemished. They're, they're fitting this description. And so what's interesting is this was a Christian group that sent these red heifers over to a Jewish group to basically say, hey, we've got your red heifers to purify the priests so they can start offering sacrifices in a temple. But here's the irony of that, and this is kind of where you kind of raise an eyebrow and scratch your head. If you truly believe that a third temple is going to be rebuilt and that's going to usher in the man of sin, then that's going to also usher in the great tribulation, which is going to be the worst time ever for any Jew on planet Earth. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, their minds, they're... In, in a sense, maybe like thinking, hastening the return of Christ through this. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. It's like, well, and I mentioned like the term self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's, uh, is prophecy fulfilled if it's humans that are reading the prophecy and then taking a conscious decision to try to fulfill that? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess it is technically Um but yeah, this is a big push right now, and there's an organization in Jerusalem called the Temple Institute, um, which I've I've walked past their headquarters. They were closed at the time; otherwise, I would have walked through their little museum. They have all the all the temple articles of worship, everything from the the garments of the priests to um, all the different silver cups and gold cups and trumpets and all this other stuff. They have it all completely constructed and ready to go. Oh, all wow. it needs to be do like they just need to load it up and take it to the temple. And uh, they have, they've even begun to train the priests um, and it's very stringent qualifications. Like the the priest, or in Hebrew, the Kohanim. Sorry, when you see people with the last name Kohen, that's a Hebrew word for a priest, Kohen. Oh, I didn't know that. They can trace their lineage. They are descendants of Aaron. So in order to serve in the temple, you have to have been born, from what I understand, in the land of Israel. You have to be a Kohen. You have to be a descendant of Aaron and be able to trace that back. Um, I, I think, oddly enough, you have to have never been hospitalized. I don't know why that is. But um, hmm. so, yeah, they, they've accumulated a large group of Kohanim, of priests, and they've begun training them using like ancient rabbinic texts uh, and, you know, the, in the Torah, training them on how to perform these different services. So they'll actually, at Passover every year, um, the Temple Institute will actually perform a Passover sacrifice. They'll just do it somewhere else, and they won't call it an official Passover sacrifice. And then hmm. they'll do they'll do various offerings and stuff to train the priest. So basically, they got everything completely staged. So when a temple is rebuilt, it's just a matter of like the very next day we can we can go ahead and move in and do this stuff. So this wow. this Christian organization, and there's many many Christian organizations that support the Temple Institute and are are partnered with the Temple Institute and are helping them fulfill their mission of um, seeing the temple rebuilt. And part of that is the red heifers. And the red heifer was um, the only sacrifice 
that could um, cleanse one of the contamination of death. And we've all hmm. come in contact with death. And even if you haven't, you probably touch someone who has, and therefore you're contaminated by death. Hmm. So in order to kickstart the Levitical priesthood and the services in the temple again, you have to have priests that have been purified with the ashes of the red heifer. The, the, the red heifer is the linchpin to everything resuming in the temple. Without it, you hmm. can't. You could even have the most ornate, beautiful temple ever built, but if you don't have priests that have been purified with the ashes of the red heifer, they can't. They can't resume the, surf, the services. So it's kind of the missing link, and that's why that was so significant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So, if a temple gets rebuilt and the Temple Institute moves into a rebuilt temple and resumes sacrifices, it very well could be a sign of the end. Mm-hmm. Or, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> I just want to read the words of Jesus, and I just want this to set in. This is Jesus, Matthew 24. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner room, do not believe him. This is the significant verse, I think, to reflect on. For Mm -hmm. as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Hmm. So when we see these signs, when we see things happening, I think we do well to pay attention to them and to not focus primarily on the signs, but to focus primarily on the state of our hearts and the quality of our Christian service. Mm -hmm. So many of the parables of Jesus were told about faithful servants who were busy doing the work of the master and the master found them faithful when he returned. Hmm. So what does it mean to be busy doing the work of the master? Well, Jesus has said, make disciples of all nations, right? And man, you should be doing that whether or not there's a red heifer on a plane to Jerusalem or not, right? (laughs) So, um, I think we're just supposed to live ready for the return of Christ at any time. And if that involves the temple being rebuilt first before he returns, awesome. I think that's fascinating. I think that's very interesting to see, and that should build our faith and make us all the more expectant for the return of Jesus. And we should be praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But if these prophecies about the building of the temple, all these are just symbolic, and the temple doesn't have to get rebuilt before Jesus returns, I think that's okay too. And I don't think that should in any way shake our faith or go, well, maybe the Bible's not real or maybe the Bible isn't. No, I I think we should be thinking about this like as an open-handed issue that's not a doctrinal major. The mm-hmm. imminency of Christ is the doctrinal major, right? Jesus is coming back and he's coming back soon. And then we should just be ready. Right. That's kind of where I land with it. How about you? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's wise. And I think it stresses the importance of you knowing the teachings of our Savior and having them committed to your memory. Because Mm -hmm. if his words are true, then there will be many false messiahs that come. And we have to be discerning between which ones are false and which one is the real one. But it seems like the real one comes, it seems like everyone will know. 
Um, right, but right, but right, it does right. say that many will be led astray, even the elect, and that's that should be terrifying. And we should, yep. we should we should really embed his teaching and and have the Holy Spirit guiding us and helping us discern what is real and what is a counterfeit. Um, but yeah, it's something to think about too. Is like you know if you look at the um, really from like the Roman conquest of the land of Judea up until the expulsion of Jews from from the land of Judea in the year 70, really, in the destruction of the temple. Um, well, you, so you can go like Messiah came, came was cut off from the, the you know, dead. Uh, he, he died, was buried, and rose again. Then the destruction of the temple and expulsion of all Jewish people from the land. Um, and it sat vacant, vacant for, for 2,000 years. What if it is restored, but in the opposite, the end times restored, but in the opposite order in which it was taken away. So you hmm. get the land, you get the people in the land, then you get the temple, and then you get the Messiah. Now, I'm not saying this is this is um, <clears throat> gospel or anything like that, but it's interesting right, how it's, right, right, it's right, right, beginning, right. you see the beginning stages of that where it's being restored sure. in the opposite order which it was taken away. But yeah, yeah. like this is, this is something I cannot stand seeing Christians divided over this issue. Mm-mm. Or argue or debate. Um, conjecture is good. Discussion is good. But dividing, um, slandering, um, right, tearing right, apart right, the right. body of Messiah over this particular issue is is is, yeah. is a travesty. Yeah, and I'll just say this too, and then uh, you know, at the risk of sounding spicy and salty, um, <laughs> I think there are Christians who get really obsessed with these fringe topics because they're not being obedient to the basic. Commission of Jesus. <laughs> you need those little, those little gangster. <laughs> yeah. The OG, the OG yeah. glasses. Like, okay, so if you are radically living out your faith in the sense of you can point to somewhere in your life where you were actively making disciples, like you've got three or four people you're pouring into, you're like, meeting with them every week. You're asking, man, how's your walk with Jesus going? You got people you're praying for that you're wanting to lead to Christ. You're, you're like really living this thing out. It's not boring to you because it requires so much faith and so much risk. And it's like, Mm -hmm. wow, man, this is the life of faith. This is so exciting and amazing. Then like things like the gospel are super exciting to you Mm -hmm. because you get to see how it's changing people's lives from the inside out. Um, Things like prayer you are so dependent on because you're like, man, I can't do this without Jesus. Things like the word of God, you you crave this every single day because you're actually living this thing out. And so when you hear about the third temple stuff, you're like, man, that's that's amazing. And it's it's not like the foundation. It's, it's just kind of icing on the cake. It's like, that's awesome. But like, if you're not making disciples, you're not telling anybody about Jesus. You're not in times of prayer. You're not reading your Bible. You're not actively involved in the life of a local church. You're going to probably, to look for something to kickstart your faith and make it interesting, gravitate towards fringe issues, Mm -hmm. and then get really into goofy conspiracy theories because that feels exciting to you because you're not actually living out your faith in a way that's vibrant and real. Dang. And so I just caution anybody, if that's where you're at, man, you need to repent. Just start living this thing out, and it's going to be exciting if you actually start getting obedient. Is that fair? So you're telling me Elon Musk <laughs> Elon Musk does not know the location of the Ark of the Covenant? And he's you're telling me he's not gonna reveal it and 
become the Antichrist. And did, did you get that email I sent you? Nah. Did it involve something about Elon Musk and the Ark of the Covenant? Okay, I'll say this it, before we sign off. Oh, boy. <laughs> I had somebody send me an email that was literally like, gosh, probably 30 paragraphs. I mean, just unbelievably long. But essentially, it was Elon Musk is the Antichrist. Mm. And mm-hmm. I forwarded it to you, Gabe. I don't know if you read it. I, it took me probably like 30 minutes to read as much of it as I could. But, I mean, towards the end of it, I was just shaking my head because it was literally, you know, it's so clear. It's so clear. Look at it. You know, all this stuff. And yeah. I'm like, wait a second. I'm pretty sure, like, a lot of people hate Elon Musk right now. Like, <laughs> could he be the Antichrist? Antichrist Absolutely. Be... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I don't know. Just go spend time with your grandkids. Get off the internet. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go yeah, invest yeah. in their lives. How long did it take you to write up that email? How many people could you have served and loved and invested time into? Instead, you're sitting on your computer writing old Pastor Josh an email about Elon Musk being the Antichrist. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway. I'm gonna, I'm gonna Thank you my, guys for I'm listening. I'm going to bite my tongue here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. If you have comments, questions... Cries of outrage or any Antichrist predictions, uh, send them to Gabe at Beards and Bible Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at Beards and Bible Podcast at gmail.com.